0: From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, as the situation deteriorates in Venezuela, a Notre Dame expert explains how we got here and what to expect next. And as millions of people celebrate their Irish heritage, we look back at a student club's championship foray into Irish dance.
1: Well, I, I just think that it's, it's a humanitarian tragedy. You know, it just is heartbreaking to
0: see a country that used to be the wealthiest in Latin America brought to an economic collapse. Michael Coppage is a professor of political science in the Keough School for Global Affairs. His research focuses on Latin American party systems and Venezuelan politics.
1: According to international organizations, Venezuelans have experienced... Um, an involuntary weight loss of I forget what the figure is but you know like like 20 pounds mm-hmm. um, over the past few years just because there's not enough food going around uh, there are some people who are dying of starvation there there are um, I mean hospitals have been deprived of supplies so people are needlessly dying even in hospitals not just because of uh, shortages of medicine but also uh, because of unsanitary conditions Mm. because they don't have all the materials they need just to keep things clean, and also now because of uh, blackouts, there, there hasn't been enough electricity to run the medical equipment that's necessary to keep many patients alive. Uh, so that, that's just heartrending to to see that happening, and is and knowing that it was completely unnecessary. It didn't have to be this way.
0: The issue in Venezuela, I think that that lands on the radar for a lot of Americans and maybe a lot of folks around the world only after it gets really bad. You know, Mm -hmm. we see it on our newspapers, but... It doesn't get to that point overnight. How did we get to the point where we are in Venezuela?
1: So Venezuela used to be considered um, one of the most stable democracies. And also it had the highest per capita income Mm. of any country in Latin America for several decades. Uh, And that was primarily due to it being a a really large oil exporter. Um, But things were relatively good until the late 1970s. I say they were relatively good. They weren't perfect. You know, it wasn't a perfect democracy. And there were problems with the economy in spite of having some rapid growth. uh, It also had a really unequal distribution of income. There was a lot of clientelism and corruption in the political system. But, you know, as Latin American countries go, it was doing fairly well. Um, and then during the the early 1970s you may remember the OPEC oil embargo 1973-74 and the price of oil just multiplied in a short Mm -hmm. span of time and Venezuela profited immensely there was just like a tremendous boom of oil in the early 1970s and in the early 1980s Uh, there were two oil shocks there and There were these periods where Venezuela Venezuela was just awash with revenues from oil exports. People were just really optimistic and um, they just thought the sky's the limit, we can do anything. Uh, Standards of living had already improved dramatically over a couple of generations. Um, and so uh, things were just going really well, but these booms were not managed well. You know, Venezuela has kind of a, a, a strange economy, because 90% of the country's um, export earnings come from selling oil mm-hmm. abroad, and after 1975, 76, um, all those revenues come into this state-owned oil company. Because that's when oil was nationalized. Um, and so basically the state receives these vast resources from the rest of the world, and then it has responsibility for figuring out how to distribute it among the population. And there were there were classes of people who uh, were well tied in to government benefits, who were working in the formal sector and had pretty good salaries. Uh, and Venezuelans were kind of the envy of the rest of Latin America. There were, you know, it was pretty common even for like public school teachers to take a vacation in Miami or just Mm -hmm. even like some people go to Miami for a weekend shopping trip. But um, with this boom and bust cycle, with a rapid increase in the price of oil and then plummeting of the price of oil, um, Venezuela would get caught short. When you look back over the decades, uh, the late 1970s were the, the peak of Venezuela's economic performance. After that, the economy has stagnated most of the time. And so I would say economically, that's when things started to decline. Okay, because of the erratic price of oil and the mismanagement of this boom and bust cycle. And so a lot of Venezuelans were really unhappy. About about this, and frustrated that the economy was not getting better, and standards of living were declining, and it was becoming harder and harder to predict what was going to be happening next mm-hmm. year, um, and they began to to blame the the two
0: main political
1: parties that had been governing Venezuela since the late
0: 1950s. So, oftentimes, when when sentiment like that starts starts to rise. Part of it is rooted in truth, but Mm -hmm. a big part of it is not. I
1: think uh, there there was some misplaced anger because this was a simplistic diagnosis of what was going on. I mean, part of Venezuela's problems were externally caused because it doesn't really control the price of oil. And it was true that there was corruption, but I don't think the degree of corruption was enough to fully explain everything that was going on. There was also a lot of inefficiency, mismanagement going on. And sure, a lot of politicians were to blame for that. Sure. but just the the notion that everything would be fine if we just got rid of the corrupt politicians, that was simplistic. So there was this, this long-term trend for... Um, some economic growth uh, with some ups and downs um, and for um, increasing political control, diminished democracy. There there was a crucial event, though, that happened uh, in 2002. There was a coup attempt against the Chavez government uh, that succeeded for about a day and a half. In fact, he was arrested and put in prison, but uh, because of popular demonstrations demanding his release he was released um and in retaliation for that the Chavez government uh just took widespread reprisals against anybody who was involved in that coup attempt you know he was able to say you know these people were not respecting the results of the elections which we won and mm. you know not following the rule of law they're disobeying the constitution they're disloyal people which was all true hmm um but part of part of this effort was uh, a general strike, which included PDVSA, the oil company. Uh, and there were there was a shutdown of production, there was a shutdown in the oil fields, there were walkouts uh, in the administrative headquarters. and retaliation for that, uh, the, the government, fired several thousand people from the oil company Mm. Uh, and in that process they lost a lot of really qualified people highly skilled workers who worked in the oil fields and highly skilled managers to administer this this company Um, and ever since then The production capacity of Pelevesa has declined Mm. and it's now producing less than half of what it used to be able to produce. I think the metaphor of killing the goose that laid the golden egg is... is Pretty appropriate here. Like Pelevisa was the goose; it was laying golden eggs. But Chavez was promising we're going to use these resources to pay for social programs, and in the process, I mean, he did that. But he also did it to such an extent that he neglected maintenance, mm. uh, an investment that was necessary to keep everything running smoothly in the future. Probably, we were also seeing that con uh, th- this conflict going on, or the consequences of this. Um, in the blackouts that Venezuela is ex- experiencing since since a few days ago. Right. Uh, because 80% of the electricity that Venezuela produces comes from this one big hydroelectric dam project called the Guri Dam. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I can't be sure of this, it, it seems very likely to me that uh, black et- blackouts are happening now because of the same kind of neglect of equipment and maintenance and investment that would, would have been necessary to keep this Hydroelectric project going, so they're really paying the consequences of that now.
0: So take us uh, into the Maduro uh, administration, because it seems like that's when things start to unravel at a a quicker rate.
1: In a sense, Chavez was very lucky because oil prices were relatively high on average as long as he was in government, and Maduro was really as as unlucky as Chavez was lucky because. Just a few months after Maduro became president, the the price of oil fell around the world. Uh, And Venezuela, in addition now to having to cut production, was also getting fewer dollars for every barrel of oil it was exporting because the price fell. And so he was really facing a shortfall there, and he continued to borrow, he also began a big program of just running the printing process, printing more and more money to pay for all the spending that he wanted to do. And as has just been repeatedly shown in world history, if you just print money to cover budget deficits, inflation is going to pick up. Mm-hmm. So inflation got higher and higher and higher, uh, first in the hundreds, then in the thousands, and now like over a million percent inflation is being predicted to be Ten million percent inflation by the end of the year, if things keep going in the direction that they've been going. So this is just, you know, apocalyptic degree of inflation. It means that savings and salaries are just basically worthless. Mm. Like if you don't, if you don't spend your money right away, it means nothing by the end of the week. Mm. So th- that just puts all Venezuelans in a really, really difficult position. Um, they they just have very little money to, to buy anything. But there are also shortages of food that have happened, uh, largely because of economic policies. One of the things that Chavez and also Maduro uh, have done is when they they met with some resistance from the private sector, they would just confiscate enterprises or confiscate farms and say, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're not willing to use your capital for the benefit of the country, then we'll take it over and we will use it for the benefit of the people. But uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, merchants were finding that with the with the severe price controls that the government was imposing. Uh, if you know they would lose money for every unit that they sold uh, of goods and there was absolutely no incentive for them to to stay in business you know and so many of them would you know as the government accused many of them would just find a warehouse and hoard their goods there Mm. hoping that eventually they'd be able to sell them for a profit but the government would use this as a pretext to just seize that seize those goods and send them to the state owned grocery stores where they could be sold and government was losing money on these things but um they didn't care
0: hmm. In our frame of reference, I think there've been a lot of folks who are quick to talk about the situation in Venezuela and blame socialism, blame a certain political philosophy. Is that too simplistic? Well, I think what Venezuela
1: has had is a is a form of socialism, uh, and the Venezuelan version of socialism. I think the the big problems with it were that first, it's it's anti-democratic. Um, it really. Did want to um, to do away with any constraints on the executive, and even though they were winning elections, as soon as they started losing elections, they started doing away with elections or cheating at elections. And so, mm-hmm. it's the the facade of democracy has been totally removed now. That's one problem. Another problem is that this was a really horribly mismanaged kind of socialism in which there, there was a, a lot of waste. Uh, there, was, there, were, there were tremendous disincentives for the private sector to continue to exist. And just the, the, the fantasy that even an oil-rich state controlling everything about the economy could be a vital, viable system, that, that's been shown to be false. I'd say the economy has pretty much collapsed in Venezuela, nothing is working. Uh, the currency is basically worthless. People don't really have much of a reason to show up for work, other than to have something to do, <laughs> uh, way to occupy their time, or maybe just hope that they'll keep their jobs and eventually maybe they'll be paid in, in some way that's that's gonna be worth something. There's a segment of the population who are really closely allied with the government and dependent on the government. So the government uses what resources it has, um, partly I think to buy the support of, of the military and political allies to keep them loyal to the regime, but it also continues funneling some of this money into the state-run grocery stores uh, and other services to to give a lifeline to people who are their their closest supporters. So there are some people who are still benefiting from the regime. But everybody else who's outside that clientelistic network, they're they're really, really struggling. Uh,
0: I, I really, I don't know how people survive. Would there be a, a historical frame of reference from which people could kind of get a picture of this? We haven't seen much of this. I won't say it's absolutely unprecedented. It's among
1: the highest inflation episodes in world history. Hmm. I mean, Weimar Germany in the 1930s, right before Hitler came to power, they had really, really, you know... I don't remember what the rate was, but hundreds of thousands or millions of percent inflation. It's the worst inflation that any country in Latin America has ever experienced. I mean, there, there have been worse food shortages around the world that have led to massive starvation uh, in North Korea, for example, or in China during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, so it's not quite as bad as that. But if something doesn't improve soon, then it could get that bad. Mm. the way that things could get worse is if this turns into a civil war so far it has not been all that violent aside from crime and Venezuela has one of the highest homicide rates in the world and certainly one of the highest street crime rates in the world it's just not a safe place to be at all these days and it's gotten worse now that there are blackouts hmm
0: how does it get better
1: that's a really difficult question. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a lot of Venezuelans and outside observers are hoping that the interim government led by Juan Guaidó will eventually be um able to take its its place as the, the government, the effective government of the country. That would require Maduro and the generals and other political lead and political leaders surrounding him to to surrender, to give up, uh, to probably leave the country and go into some kind of golden exile in another country. So they're not gonna leave without a fight, yeah. probably. Uh, having said that, you know the positive signs are that Guaido has a legitimate claim to be the interim president of Venezuela, even according to the constitution. Um, and he has been recognized not only by the United States, but by 50 other countries around the world, including a lot of countries in Europe. Um, And the practical effect of that uh, is really powerful because it means that countries that recognize Guaido uh, cannot legally uh, send Venezuela's profits from oil exports to the Maduro-controlled government. Those profits have to be sent to the Guaido-controlled government. Mm. Um, And so... The, in the long term you expect that there will be fewer and fewer resources flowing from the rest of the world into Maduro's government and more and more resources flowing into the Guaido-led government. And that means that eventually the the Maduro government is not going to be able to, to pay salaries, it's not going to be able to support the social programs, and Guaido eventually will have resources to be able to take over those responsibilities it's a it's a it's a really daunting challenge to be able to do that though because it's kind of a ragtag organization at this point it's, it's uh i won't say it's on the run but they're you know having to hide sometimes and just have these pop pop-up rallies and demonstrations uh and and trying to work with other countries but you know it's even dif- more difficult now because uh, president trump ordered all american diplomats to leave venezuela they're basically shutting down the en- embassy and so that makes it even more difficult for Any Venezuelan uh, politicians on either side of this divide to communicate with the United States. Mm. Um, Another reason, a more self-interested reason to care about it, is that there's is the refugee crisis. There are millions of Venezuelans who are now refugees in other countries, Um, and they need help of some sort. Um, They're they're fleeing not only economic collapse and food shortages but also political persecution in many cases Uh, many of them face a realistic fear of of death threats and violence if, if they return home so um, that's, that becomes a problem for other countries. You know, I, I would hope that, that all of us would find ways to open our arms and welcome them and provide them with a place. And I hear that there's some talk that even the Trump administration, which has been you know, reluctant to accept further immigration, has been talking about offering temporary protected status to Venezuelans who are refugees. Uh, I hope that happens. There are Venezuelans every everywhere now. We have we have two Venezuelan restaurants in South Bend now. There are thousands of Venezuelans who are living in St. Joseph County, uh, in a growing number, all the time. And I'm happy about that because I care about the country and I enjoy being around Venezuelans. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it's, it's it's a presence that uh, it, it can't be
0: overlooked. Michael Kobich, thank you very much. You're welcome. of Americans celebrate their Irish heritage, honorary and otherwise, during the month of March. Notre Dame's Irish roots extend far deeper than the name of its athletics teams. They include the tale of Father William Corby, Notre Dame's third president, who served as chaplain for the Irish Brigade in the Civil War and famously gave absolution before Pickett's charge at the Battle of Gettysburg. Deeper still, four of the six religious brothers who helped found the university were Irish, Today, Notre Dame's connection to Ireland includes multiple programs and facilities in the Emerald Isle where students and scholars can advance their research and education, as well as their faith. Back on campus, the connection includes the Keogh naun Institute for Irish Studies, the largest center for the study of Irish language outside Dublin. And it includes something else. The Notre Dame and St. Mary's Irish Dance Team. The team is a club team made up of students who have practiced Irish dance in their childhood and through high school. This past February they traveled to Ireland to compete in the All-Ireland Dance Competition where they secured their eighth title in the niche club division. In 2016 we followed them from their practices on campus to their competition in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And we found that the sacrifice made on behalf of Irish dance is commending not only to these young people, but to the originating culture as well. Make
2: this one count. Take your butt. Come on. Rachel, every single time, take your
3: butt. You, like you have the the steps, but the skill is like continually being improved, you know, you lose the turnout or you lose the muscle, you know. So you still have to practice, still have to keep up. And you can hear Robert yelling at us to kick our butts and like <laughs> (laughs) Point our toes. You still have to cross your feet even a
2: little more, go up on your toes, even that one more centimeter makes a huge difference. So every day taking one little thing um, of these most basic steps is something that really takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, And then when you get into the team dances, there's so much that goes to lines. If one person is an inch off, the judges can tell.
0: If you spend any length of time around Irish dancers, you learn very quickly they're a tough group. The sport, and yes, this is as much sport as art form, is demanding. Demanding of your time and of your body. It's quite common for dancers to miss time due to injury, and several members of the Notre Dame St. Mary's team had to remove orthopedic boots before practice and put them right back on after.
3: It's harder than it looks. I think we make it look easy, just because we've been doing it so long. So even like the smallest footwork
2: in Irish dance takes so much skill and so much of your practice. So the type of dance we do, the Kaylee, it's a more traditional dancing. And it's things, steps we've known how to do for so many years. But we still have to perfect it, you still have problems.
0: You learn something else from being around Irish dance. It's steeped in cultural and religious significance. The Cayley Dance, referred to, is a dance for a group of eight, historically performed after Sunday Mass. And, incidentally, that's part of the reason for the outlandish wigs of curly hair you see Irish dancers wear. Supposedly, that's a reflection of girls attending Mass in their Sunday best, which included curling their hair. Irish dance itself was a key cultural distinguisher as Ireland sought to break free from British influence a century ago. There's a sort of metaculture within the Irish dance world as well, and you kind of have to get it to get it. It's part of what makes the Notre Dame St. Mary's team unique.
3: I love these girls. Like some of them, like I've known since I was six because they're from Youngstown, or even like I competed against them at dance. So it's like it's a whole other community that you have that no one else knows about. So like my friends from school knew that I was always at dance practice, but like they didn't really know my dance friends, you know? So it's like it's like another world that nobody really gets. Everybody like has a little bit different style. Like every school is a little bit different, but it's all basically the same, you know? Like we have different words for like our soft shoes or our hard shoes but like it's all it's all the same just like a different word or a different phrase it's really cool because everyone comes together and kind of compiles all their experiences but they're all common just a little bit different
0: the culmination of those compiled experiences is the now annual trip to Ireland and it's not just because this team featured names like Kerrigan McGarry Wilson and Garrity
2: I guess for me, it's been a dream of mine ever since I started Irish dance in preschool. The dream for most dancers is to go to Ireland to dance. Like that's the epitome of Irish dance. What you want to do?
0: The trip featured stops at the Notre Dame Global Gateway in Dublin, as well as significant sites throughout the island. Before finally, it was competition day. The team stepped on stage before a hushed crowd in a cavernous auditorium. The public address introduced the team. Team 101 dancing the cross street. and just like that the dance commenced. When it was over, the team would say it was probably their best rendition yet, and rightfully so.
2: All eight of us were seniors, so it's the last time any of us will ever dance competitively for Irish dance. We're kind of retiring the shoes after this. Um, So it's bittersweet in a way. Um, I think it's really been the best competition for me so far. The last one, every time you go back, you are able to enjoy it more and more.
0: The Kaylee dance is about time, marking each step based on the song's rhythm and progression. And for members of the Notre Dame St. Mary's team, perhaps it's fitting to close out their competitive career this way. A dance marked in time, marking the passage of time from one chapter of their life to the next. Irish dance is immediately recognizable and eminently eye catching. It is something that says Irish without saying anything at all. A group of Notre Dame students leaving their mark on the All Ireland competition is a celebration of a connection to Ireland and a nod to Irish ancestry, honorary or otherwise. Office of Public Affairs and Communications.